Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, David Gran, Janet Reitman, Tom Junot, Eli Saslow, Ben Montgomery, Landa Gregory, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I'm going to replay an interview I did with Kim Cross in September of 2015. At the time, I talked with Cross about her book, What Stands in the Storm, Three Days in the Worst Superstorm to Hit the South's Tornado Alley. The book is a reporting and writing masterpiece, as Cross went to great lengths to make sure the reporting was accurate and the writing was compelling. I wanted to give you the sense of urgency and chaos and uncertainty that really was the hallmark of that day for everyone, from the meteorologists to the people who were going through it to the families who were searching for people they didn't hear from. I felt like that was the emotion that you needed as a reader to feel in order to really empathize with the characters. Since joining the podcast, Cross has been included in Best American Sports Writing twice. She was included in the 2016 edition for her story, The King of Tides, which ran in Southwest the magazine. And this year, Cross will be in BASW 2019 for a story she wrote for Bicycling Magazine. That story is about a prisoner in California who spends his time restoring used bicycles. Cross has received awards from the Society of Professional Journalists and the Society of American Travel Writers. Her work has appeared in Outside, Southern Living, Cooking Light, Bike, Bicycling, Runner's World, The Tampa Bay Times, ESPN.com, and many more publications. As usual, we've linked to some of Cross's work on our website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. Kim, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Let's let's start off uh, by talking about your book, What Stands in a Storm?, can you, can you talk about the book and what you were hoping to capture in it? Sure. So the book is a literary nonfiction account of the biggest tornado outbreak in recorded history. And I wanted to take you through the storm from the perspective of the people who lived it. I wanted to put you in the room with the people who were huddled in their safe room. I wanted to um, give you a big perspective of what's happening across 21 states through the characters who are meteorologists. And um, I wanted to do it in a cinematic way so that you felt that you were part of the historic event as it was unfolding live, and you didn't know any more in any given scene than the characters knew in that exact moment. What, um, What made you want to write this book? Well, it happened in my backyard, really. Um, Everyone who lives in Alabama, I live in Birmingham, uh, everyone here either was personally affected or knew someone who was. And, you know, 62 tornadoes hit my state in one day, and a lot of them were the biggest variety, the the EF4 and EF5s, that really can just wipe the town off the earth. And I was sitting at home in my house on my couch with my husband and my 4-year-old son, when the EF4 that struck Tuscaloosa was coming through town. 
And um, I had lived in Tuscaloosa twice, first as an undergrad and second after working for a few years in San Francisco. I moved back with my husband and uh, went to grad school. So we had just lived there recently. And we were looking at it on TV as it was being captured by the live Skycam um, coming through what was formerly our hometown. And it was like that moment when you were watching the, the towers fall on, on 9-11 when you think, can this be real? You know, is this really happening? And um, the tornado continued coming toward, you know, toward Birmingham where we live. And for, um, for a little while, it looked like it was on track to, to hit our house. At some point, the power failed, and we got in our laundry room and put bike helmets on and had the moment that everyone who's ever been through this um, has experienced where you have time to think, um, wow, we could die. Mm-hmm. Um, there aren't many times in your life when, you know, you can contemplate that, but um, we had time, and it was, you know, it was, it was terrifying. Um, so I felt like this was such a shared experience for everyone in our state and really anyone who's been through a storm. And um, and wanted to to you know capture it, um, you know I, I looked in there, I didn't find the book that I thought ranked up there with um, the perfect storm and Isaac Storm that happened to be about tornadoes, and mm-hmm. so I thought you know this really needs to be told. Mm-hmm. So the, the tornadoes happened in April of of 2011. Mm-hmm. How how quickly did you know then that you wanted to to tackle that as as a book? You know I didn't know um, at the time. I didn't think at the time about writing a book. I just uh, went back to work. I was a, um, a senior editor at Southern Living at the time, and, you know, Southern Living doesn't typically do news, but um, our editor, Lindsay Behrman, said, you know, this, this happened in our backyard. This is, this is our story. We need to do something. And the question was, what do we do with a four-month lead time? What do we write that'll be relevant for our readers? And that, you know, we'll say something that hasn't been said and, and still be relevant four months from now. And um, I was one of only, you know, a couple of, um, I guess, staffers who had had news experience. I worked at the New Orleans Times-Picayune and um, the St. Petersburg Times for a brief while. And and so all eyes kind of swiveled toward me. And and I just kind of felt like, you know, I got this. This is, yes, we're going to tell the story. So um, they appointed me to to head up a team of writers and photographers who canvassed disaster zones in in, um, a number of states affected. And we all went out and we looked for, um, you know, things that kind of fit the theme of what, how people cope with disasters, whether that disaster is a flood or a hurricane or a tornado or 9-11. And so we, we wanted to know, like, okay, how do people cope? And the, what we found kind of fell into themes that I thought were, were universal and timeless. And they were, for the story, they were faith, food, and fellowship. Um, and that's how... Uh, people dealing with a crisis typically um, kind of got through that crisis. So that's the story we wrote. Um, also for that story, um, Rick Bragg, who I had recruited as a columnist for Southern Living's back page, um, the Southern, Southern Journal column, he lived in Tuscaloosa. He still does. And so uh, I, I called him and I said, you know, are you okay? Were, you know, were you hit? And he said, you know, um, our our street was hit. We live at the good side of the street, but, you know, at the other side of the street, bodies are being pulled out. And so, um, you know, after we established that he and his family were, were okay, um, you know, I asked, would you, would you write something for us? Because it's, it has hit home, you know, this is, you know, you're, you're seeing it live, and, and I knew he would do a beautiful job in describing the timeless things um, that, that happen in, in a crisis like this. So we did the story, and... Um, 
it got hundreds of reader emails and letters and comments, and a lot of them said the same thing. It said, you know, this made us proud to be Southern. This mm-hmm. made me cry for the first time of 30 years of reading Southern Living. And um, we realized that it, it really um, hit people in an emotional place that um, is, I don't know, that, that underscores the importance of storytelling in, in I think, the healing process of, uh, of a community and an individual. So after those readers' letters, those were really what got me thinking that this should be a book, because I thought, you know, this this story meant something to people. It helped them in some way, for some of them, and um, and maybe it could do this on a, a bigger scale um, through a book. And then I also, because that story was so focused on the aftermath and um, the way, you know, the things that tear our world apart reveal what holds us together, I wanted to tell the story of the storm itself as it was unfolding, because it was the, um, you know, one of two outbreaks um, in, in recorded history that have um, been of this magnitude. The other one was 1974, and um, it also touched uh, Alabama, but most notably Xenia, Ohio. So mm-hmm. I, I thought, you know, I want to make sense of this horrible thing and also show um, the beautiful things that come from our brokenness. Mm-hmm. Have you, uh, before you started writing this book, were, have, were you the type of reader who liked these type of um, because you, you're right, there are natural disaster books for almost every type of natural disaster, right? There's uh, mm-hmm. you know, Simon Winchester's book on the 1906 earthquake in, in San Francisco, and there's The Perfect Storm, uh, Sebastian Junger, and uh, just about, uh, you know, Isaac Storm for Hurricanes mm-hmm. uh, by, uh, by Eric Larson. Did you like to read those, those types of books before you started working on this? I don't know that I was drawn to natural disasters, but I have always been drawn to literary nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, John Krakauer was one of the first writers that I fell in love with. I mm-hmm. think he's the only writer to whom I ever wrote a fan letter <laughs> when I was like a teenager. Um, and Into Thin Air just gripped me, and I thought, oh my God, mm-hmm. I want to do this someday. It just took my breath away. And then um, I read The Perfect Storm and felt the same thing. And so I, I've always been, I've always wanted to do that and just never had the opportunity to do it. So when um, this unfolded, it, it just seemed like this is the book I've been waiting mm-hmm. to tell my whole life. And it was the perfect first book for me um, for that reason. You know, it was in my backyard. It was really personally meaningful to me, and it was um, in, the, in the genre that I, you know, I want to pursue for the rest of my career. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of my, my breakout moment. Yeah, I know um, you, you mentioned earlier, and, and it's mentioned on your website as well, that when you were writing the book, you wanted to make sure that um, that the reader didn't know anything that the people who were experiencing it didn't already know. Can you talk about why you went ahead and, and built, built the book that way? Well, I wanted to give you the sense of urgency and chaos and uncertainty that really was the hallmark of that day for everyone, from the meteorologists to the people who were going through it to the families who were searching for people they didn't hear from. I felt like that was the emotion that you needed as a reader to feel in order to really empathize with the characters. And what made that possible was um, a very strict timeline, or basically, you know, like five timelines layered one upon the other, that um, allowed me to, to capture that. And Technically, I started with um, the broadcast of James Spann, who was the meteorologist that everyone turned to on that day. And someone had posted his wall-to-wall um, broadcast of 
uh, basically he goes wall to wall coverage in, in a storms, which means that there are no commercials from the minute the first warning um, goes on the air to the expiration of the last warning of the day. No commercials, no shows, no interruptions. And so um, someone had posted that transcript on YouTube in, in 15 minute increments. You can go on and see it. And I sat myself down in front of the computer with a cup of coffee for several days and transcribed the whole thing from, um, you know, it started in the morning and then it continued in the afternoon with the second round. And then the third and, you know, uh, most devastating round of tornadoes came from the afternoon um, ending around 9 p.m. And that really gave me um, a you know, verbatim dialogue, which is great, um, and also a sense of exactly what he knew at a specific moment in time. And I had timestamps. Every time he said something, I would make a little note of the time. So I knew that at you know this precise moment in time, he, he, he could see that there were seven cells in Alabama, and he didn't know if they all were producing tornadoes, and he didn't know exactly you know what was happening or how many people had died. And so you know that's pretty hard to recreate in retrospect um, without that kind of source. So um, that's that was kind of the uh, the approach I took to to doing that. Was that was that timeline um, that transcript um, of the weatherman? Uh, was that your first bit of reporting on this book? You know, I, I I can't say what was my first bit. I mean, it really started with the um, the magazine piece mm-hmm. and a lot of the leads I got from that. Very few of which I actually used for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, there are only one or two characters. And, and one chapter that was that was uh, I guess a, a translation of the magazine piece, but I would say that was my starting point in knowing like in building the arc of the story and um, recreating the unfolding of the event with the the tension and suspense that it needed to have for for this kind of book. Mm-hmm. How how did you find people to talk to um, for the, for the book? Gosh, so. You know, I, I really had to approach it with almost a, you know, a, a canvassing casting call where I looked at all of the towns that were hit in Alabama, and then I looked, um, you know, there there were lists of victims, and I and I I looked at almost all of them to see, you know, who these people were, um, what had happened to them, how they died, um, you know, who they left behind, and then from them I started winnowing down to like who who do I want to focus on? You know, there were too many towns hit and too many tornadoes to include them all, so I really had to narrow it down to, um, you know, a, a, a reasonably small cast of characters so that you wouldn't, as a reader, just get lost in all of the people. Um, and so I narrowed it down to um, two towns that I thought would be representative of a lot of the towns, and one was Tuscaloosa, which is the home of um, the University of Alabama and the, you know, award-winning Crimson Tide football team, and I figured that most people can relate to a college town, and, you know, it was the biggest um, population center that was, was hit by, a, a you know, a big one that day. And then I also chose Cordova, which was a, a tiny little town about an hour north um, west of Birmingham, because Cordova, unlike Tuscaloosa, had a volunteer fire department. They didn't have professionals. They had, you know, people who are unpaid and go out on search and rescue because they love it. And they have considerably fewer resources than a town like Tuscaloosa. And I wanted to show what the little towns were going through and how that was different from the big cities, because most of the firefighters in our country are volunteer firefighters. And I thought that that was really an important perspective to convey. 
And then within those towns, I looked for, for characters that I thought would, um, you know, be, be relatable, be people that you could relate to and who would remind you of someone that you know so that you would paint a familiar face on them and really care about them. And um, as an aside, that's one of the reasons we didn't put pictures of the characters in the book is we wanted you to um, adopt them like you do a you know, fictional character and make them yours and put your own face on them and care about them. And we knew that readers would ultimately Google them and, and see pictures of them um, you know, after the fact and, and know who they were. So in Cordova, I, I focused on um, the firefighter and who he was, I think, 18 at the time. He was 21. Um, Brett Dawkins was 21 at the time, and he and his mother lived in a house that was actually hit um, by the second round of storms. Cordova was a rare town where it was hit by the morning storms, and then it was hit by an EF4 in the afternoon. So it was hit twice in one day, and um, Brett was downtown sort of cleaning up the rubble from the first storm when the second one hit and you know he had footage of on his phone of the tornado coming through the town you could actually see it through the crack in the door where he was filming and um uh his his house and was taken out by the storm as well so he was both a victim and a rescuer and i thought that that was a really powerful combination mm-hmm. um and then in tuscaloosa i focused on a house where three students from different colleges were um, hiding and doing everything right. And um, they th- there was incredible amounts of, of um, source material on them from interviews with um, the mother who was on the phone with her daughter when it hit and remembered, you know, consistently every word of dialogue to the Facebook posts and the text conversations that were playing out um, all time-stamped in the minutes um, before the tornado hit the house. So um, from that, there, you know, is a pretty powerful story of, you know, both rescuers and victims and people who are um, waiting for it to hit and then the families who go searching for them. Mm -hmm. Was it um, hard at times reporting or difficult reporting, uh, not physically, but like emotionally, because you are um, you're you're interviewing people who whose lives were were devastated uh, in many ways. Was that was that difficult? Oh, absolutely. That was the hardest part and also the most fulfilling part. Um, you know, I think that empathy is what made the book what it is, but it also is, is um, it's what makes it hard because you, you feel their pain. I mean, I cried a lot <laughs> in the reporting and writing and fact-checking of the book, and um, it did take, um, you know, a bit of a mental toll, but anytime I tried to I started to feel sorry for myself, I would just remind myself, well, you know, what you're feeling is just an iota of what these people have been through. So, you know, suck it up. Now, you mentioned that um, that you were kind of, you rode out the storm in, in your own house. So I'm assuming mm-hmm. your house was all right? You know, it was. Um, our neighborhood was not even touched. We didn't see the trees even stir. So um, I, I can't, I, I feel like it's not even fair to say we rode out the storm. We, um, we appeared to be in its path, and as it was approaching when we lost power, we got in the laundry room, which is what, you know, what you're supposed to go to the bottom floor, middle of the house, small room, away from windows. And that is what we had. We don't have a basement. And we got on um, our cell phones, and we followed James Spann's Twitter feed, and he posted a link to the live stream footage that he was broadcasting on TV, so we were able to watch TV on our phones. And he knows... Alabama geography so well that he calls out, um, you know, catfish restaurants and 
four-way stops and, and specific neighborhoods that are um, in the path of the storm so that people can get to safety. And at one point, he did call out our neighborhood, so it got very real at that moment. Um, but like I said, nothing nothing happened in our neighborhood. I think it hit about seven miles away um, in Pleasant Grove, and we were we were lucky. But on a day like that, it's it's almost like Russian roulette. You just don't know you know where the bullets are going to come out and hit. And um, so everyone has this sense of wow, that could have been me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um- I, you mentioned as we were, were planning for this talk that you oftentimes, when you were reporting, uh, thought as a fiction writer. Um, but that's when you were reporting, not necessarily writing. Can you talk a little bit about why why you would do that and, and how it could help you um, later when you started writing the story? Absolutely. So um, this is something really new for me because I've always been steeped in journalism and nonfiction and you never make anything up. You don't imagine anything. You just go with what the source does and you fact check it. And suddenly I, I started, you know, when I was roughing out some of the scenes, I started noticing that, you know, this feels a little bit thin. So I'm, I'm in the house, but I don't know exactly what the house looks like. And so, you know, if, if I'm the character and I'm hiding here um, and I turn to the right, what do I see? Um, I don't know that. So that would guide my questioning, and it would guide details that I would look for. Um, there was a scene where um, one of my character's sister is driving from Mississippi to Tuscaloosa to look for her sister, who has not responded to calls or texts and is feared missing or dead. And she's made up missing person flyers, and she's driving the car with her fiancé. And so I, I looked up the road they would have been driving and saw, like, okay, if she's looking out the window, what is she looking at? Um, okay, she has these flyers. Are they in her lap? Is she clutching them? Or are they in the back seat? And so it's that kind of thing where you um, you then you see how you need to flesh out a scene to make it really come alive, and that um, inspires the questions that you ask to get the detail that it it takes to, to make a scene come alive. So, of course, nothing is made up, nothing's fictional, but you, you almost have to make assumptions and then fact-check them with the source in order to get that level of detail because a lot of times sources, either they don't remember or it doesn't occur to them to um, to tell you these things. And so you have to kind of tease them out that way by imagining what it might look like and then asking them, you know, is this what it looked like? Did it, you know, tell me in your words. And um, and I think that, that that's something I had never done done before, but I it, it, was, it was kind of a fun approach. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about uh, the fact-checking? Um, I know books aren't oftentimes fact-checked, uh, but I know you did. Can you talk about how you went about doing that? Absolutely. So I, I obsess about the facts, and um, I lost sleep over a number of things in this book. And, you know, one was that I, I, wanted, to, um, I wanted to kind of John McSee the weather, and I wanted to make it understandable and um, relatable to a lay audience to the non-scientist without getting so um, overboard with metaphors that the meteorologists would find, you know, flaws in it or roll their eyes or be like, that's just plain wrong. And, um, and then secondly, you know, I wanted to make sure that in, in all of my kind of distilling of what people told me in their interviews into scenes that aren't attributed in the traditional journalistic sense, I wanted to make sure I didn't make any assumptions that um, that were in, incorrect. Sorry, my, my dog is sitting right here. <laughs> She's making noises. Um, <laughs> so in doing that, um, to fact check it, 
I, I recruited a number of meteorologists to, to, you know, help me as I was writing it to review scenes and also to, to read it before it went to press. And one of them that I, I would like to acknowledge and thank, you know, uh, outwardly is Chuck Doswell, who is probably the most knowledgeable tornado research scientist in the country. He has spent his whole career studying tornadoes um, in the truest hardcore science sense of the word. Um, he is also one of the biggest critics of any book written about the weather, especially those by lay people, because they tend to get stuff wrong. So in fact, checking the meteorology, I really wanted to make sure that my metaphors were not a stretch, that the information I conveyed was, was accurate. And this is hard to do because one, one little word in, um, you know, in science can change the whole meaning and accuracy of a paragraph. So I reached out early on to Chuck Doswell, who is one of the most experienced tornado researchers in the country. Um, he spent his entire career researching tornadoes and the formation and um, he's also one of the biggest critics of books about meteorology, especially those by lay people, because they tend to get the science wrong. Mm -hmm. And he told me that he didn't do interviews anymore because he had been misquoted so many times mm -hmm. and that he would he would correspond only in writing. So he had a record of what was said. And so I said, OK, that's you know, I'm good with that. And as I went, I would just kind of send him passages and say, Chuck, did I get this right? And you know he's he's pretty cantankerous and would say like, you know some of your some of your concepts are seriously flawed and I'd be like great tell me which ones and tell me how to you know how to make them right, and so he vetted as we went along and then at the very end I asked him to to read it and and really look hard at any of the science that was incorrect and so he identified um, some you know serious things that only a scientist would see. Mm -hmm. um, on top of that, I hired a National Geographic trained, let me redo that. On top of that, I reached out to David Quammen and asked him, who fact-checks your books? Because I realized that although uh, magazines have staffs of fact-checkers who go behind you and check your facts, um, book publishers don't. And it was on me to hire one. And so I reached out to David Quammen and said, who checks your books? And he gave me the name of a woman who um, was a fact checker at National Geographic for years. And I thought, okay, she is going to be great with the science. And she was expensive. And um, I sold my mountain bike to, to pay for um, her fees. And I, I had her check the science parts um, very carefully. And then I had um, a good friend of mine, Nahi Datari, who was my editor at Business 2.0 years ago. And she um, helped me with the fact checking on the rest of the book, the non-science parts. But that even wasn't enough for me because I knew there were things like, um, you know, scenes and, and assumptions and um, details that only the characters and the families would, you know, notice were not right. And so um, one of my last phases before the book went to, to print was to sit down for a private reading with um, the, each of the three families who had lost a child in the storm and... Um, I sat down with them separately, and I read every chapter um, in which their their kid appeared. And it was a really important part of the process, I think, for me as a just a person, as well as a journalist, and also for them as a, a source who's trusting you with the mm -hmm. most you know sensitive and emotional story of their lives. And I felt like, gosh, why wouldn't I trust them with like, hey, here's my story, and if there's a part of it that doesn't sound right or that makes you uncomfortable, let's let's talk about it. Um, you know, as journalists, we're trained never to show a source a story before it runs, 
And at some point, that just felt wrong to me. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember years ago, um, Tom French, at the time Stickyune, had said that, you know, when he spends a year with a source, he reads them story. And um, that catches a lot of little errors that wouldn't be caught by fact-checking, but it also, you know, um, is, is an act of trust, r- reciprocal trust, after they've trusted you with their story. And so I held on to that, and that really um, helped me. And the other thing that it did was, you know, I didn't want I didn't want my families to experience the book alone, you know, in some room for the first time. I just thought how lonely that would feel. And so I thought, you know, let's read it together. And, you know, we all cried together. We cried the ugly cry, and it was a real bonding moment for all of us. And I think, you know, it, it closed the loop for me, and it... it it wouldn't have felt right not doing that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that was really the final step of fact-checking that allowed me to sleep a little better at night. Mm-hmm. And um, and so far, you know, I haven't had people coming out of the work, work you know, pointing pointing out stuff that's wrong. So, Well, I, uh, I, I, I know um, that uh, you also said that uh, Mike Wilson had a really big impact on you as, as a writer. Uh, and we had Mike on the podcast a couple episodes ago. Um, oh, great. What, what, uh, what, what, how did Mike impact your, or influence your life as a, as a, as a journalist? So Mike, I call Mike my, my Jedi master of mentors. I only got to work with Mike, you know, officially for probably three months. And I was, um, a little funny backstory. When I was an undergrad, um, in journalism, I turned down an internship at the St. Pete Times because I didn't know any better. I didn't know it was a you know amazing paper. I just it was totally ignorant, and um, and then I, I regretted it for for years. So then I went out and after I graduated, I worked in San Francisco for four years, and then I came back to grad school. And when I was in grad school, I decided you know I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can have another shot at that because I'd really like to to work with some of those amazing writers. And they took me back, and I, I was assigned to Mike, who was the editor of the Floridian News Feature section. And um, in, in just that summer, I, I learned so much, and he really took my writing up at least one notch, if not several, and opened my eyes to what was possible. And just watching writers who were there at the time, like Kelly Benham is amazing, and I would just look at her with awe at what she was able to do, and Linda Gregory, Tom French was there, and um, just being in that environment and seeing um, these people who were pushing the limits of what was possible um, so far beyond where I was at the time was really um, inspiring and a defining moment for me. And so after I left, I just kind of stayed in touch with Mike and um, you know, whenever I had a really big story or a really tough decision to make, he was the trusted editor that I would reach out to and say, like, what do you think about this? And so he guided me at real pivotal moments in my career. I tried not to pester him too much, and um, we're, we're good friends, so I, I think that I, I stayed <laughs> shy of too much. <laughs> but, um, you know, he would advise career changes, and, and um, at one point when I was at Southern Living, I hired him to write a story for the magazine. We were doing a story on the 50th anniversary of To Kill a Mockingbird and um, wanted to send someone to Monroeville. And I said, if anyone can do this story, Mike would do a great job. And so we hired him and sent him there. And then I found myself in the position of editing my mentor, <laughs> which was which was really neat. We, we had a great time. And, um, 
it, uh, I don't know. I, I just have learned so much from him um, in the, gosh, 10-plus years we've known each other that um, he continues to be a really good friend and, and a mentor. Mm-hmm. Well, Kim, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been um, a real pleasure talking to you. Gangri the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism Program at Fairfield University. The Bachelor of Arts degree in Digital Journalism is a rigorous 12-course program designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to take part in today's quickly changing media world. The podcast is also brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. The college grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. To learn more about the Digital Journalism Program and the College of Arts and Sciences, visit www.fairfield.edu. That was an interview I did with Kim Cross in September of 2015. Cross is a freelance writer and editor, and she'll have a piece she wrote for Bicycling Magazine in Best American Sports Writing 2019. As usual, we've linked to her work on our website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at gangrypodcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by Fairfield University's digital journalism program, and the College of Arts and Sciences. Our music comes from Audionautics. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.